Record Collections and Recollections. Out of the Box, with Mia Hull on FBI Radio. Hey, Mia Hull here on FBI Radio 94.5, streaming online or on the podcast, This Is Out of the Box. Every Thursday from 12 to 1, I sit down with one person and their record collection and pour over the songs and stories that have shaped the person they are. I'm coming to you from Redfern on land belonging to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and my guest is joining me remotely from Nyamba country today. The story we're about to tell was written and takes place on Nyamba land, so I'd also like to acknowledge the language groups that call that place home, Bajidi, Gorunu Barkindji, Mulawari and Nyamba. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to any First Nations person listening right now. Sovereignty was never ceded, this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. The other day one of my friends asked me what my parents' lives were like before I was born. And my answer was a bit of a patchwork of the stories I've been told throughout my life, but it didn't really paint a fulsome picture. And that's something I want to change. So today I'm sitting down with my dad, Andrew Hull, and no, it's not because I couldn't find a guest to have on the show this week. He is a writer, an artist, a poet, a self-proclaimed renaissance man, and now I guess a podcast and documentary guy as well. We'll get into that later in the show. But yeah, my dad is a Barkindji man. He's a lover of Bob Dylan, and I think he's a master storyteller. So we're going to walk through the story of Andrew Hull's life and stop to listen to the songs that have soundtracked the big moments. Dad, thank you so much for joining me on Out of the Box today. Hello, Mia. It's a great pleasure to be invited. This is very surreal. (laughs) Let's start this story in the house you grew up in. Can you paint a picture of it for me? Sure. So I, I was born in Burke, in a little town in western New South Wales. Um, for a long time, you couldn't be born in Burke. Certainly, a long part of my adult life, the birthing facilities weren't available here. So that sort of gives you an idea of how small it is. Burke's on the Darling River, and I was born in uh, Darling Street and grew up in Darling Street. So the house I was raised and, and lived in was a little three-bedroom place. It had a little uh, little lounge room a little extension out the back that we had functioned as a kitchen. The back veranda was turned into the kitchen and it sort of just kept getting tacked onto as it grew. There was my sister uh, in the household as well as my parents, of course, Uh, plus a sort of stream of neighbours and relatives and other visitors that used to sort of wander through the place. My uh, old man had a a bit of a penchant for picking up uh, stray dogs. So it'd be nothing to wake up on a Saturday morning and there'd be a couple of strangers in the house and dad's cooking breakfast for them. Uh, and the house itself was just a standard sort of fibro, weatherboard, half weatherboard, half fibro house. There's, in Burke, there's at least half a dozen identical houses. So they were probably a, like a, a business type house at some some point where they built a bunch of identical houses for um you know for employee housing and i was born in 1970 so it had shag park carpet and <laughs> wild wallpaper and no two rooms were alike and um yeah it didn't have uh, it didn't have a telephone in it um at uh when i was an early teen we did cut a hole in the wall and whack an air conditioner in 
Um, so that was the only air conditioning we had before that. It was sort of a wet cloth on the on the uh, forehead at night time and sometimes we would sleep outside just to be cool because Burke, as you know, is a hot place to live in the summer. <laughs> yeah, so that was my house. And that colourful wallpaper and no two rooms looking the same is your mum's creative inflection. Tell me about your mum. Yeah, so my mum's... Um, my mum's a creative at heart, so the best way to describe her now is she's in her 80s. She lives in a straw bale house that's sort of, you know, hand-rendered on the outside, fully solar, fully off the grid, self-composting toilet, yeah, fully off the grid. And just a couple of years ago, uh, she was like, have you heard of this band, Aha? And I was like, yes, mum, Aha, we're a cheesy <laughs> band in the 80s. She's like, oh, I think they're fantastic. In fact... I'm going to go and see them in a festival in Iceland. Uh, and so that's so she did. That's a pretty good way to sort of paint a picture of my mum. But, of course, back when I was born, she was much younger, still just as creative and still just as interesting. Uh, I don't think Burke ever probably quite understood my mum. And she probably never really settled into Burke as well as other people do or attempt to do. Did your dad settle into Burke okay? Well, dad's a Burke boy and he fitted into Burke perfectly. Burke was and to some extent still is a, a blokey town. It's a hard-drinking town. It's a, it's a pretty tough place to live. You know, it's very much a frontier settlement. And, um, yeah, you know, there's not a lot of the finer things in life. As a matter of course, there's no theatre or, you know, fine art galleries or, you know, expensive cafes or things like that. But you have had art exhibitions in Burke, which we'll come back to later in the show. When did you first leave Burke? I left Burke to go to boarding school at the age of 12. I went to boarding school in Forbes. It was actually a boarding hostel. So my education was at the public, uh, through the public system in Forbes, but there was a, a boarding hostel associated with the Anglican Church. And uh, yeah, lots of bush kids went there, lots of sort of uh, bush kids, show kids. So I grew up um, with showies in, yeah, in my teenage years. They were, that was really sort of colourful and exciting. A lot of bush kids from out this way uh, were there. Yeah, and then I never really sort of got to come back fully. Um, it's difficult to explain. People who come from small towns might understand it, but but I just knew that when I got back and I was fanging to go and see my mates, I went running around there on the BMX, you know, like, let's go do something. It was like, oh, you know, I was I was out of the conversations. I wasn't, um, the you know, I, I, I'd, I'd left them and... I wasn't, we were still all friendly and, and even though, you know, say my family's got, you know, great grandparents in the cemetery, it's, um, it, the mentality of how you approach the town was different. Dad, what's the first song you'd like to play on the show today? So I want to play a song from the first album I ever bought. And this is because the first album I ever bought also coincides with that trip to Forbes and that breakaway and that uh, new Burke experience, even though if whether I realised it or not. Um, the song's called The Swing. The album was called The Swing. Um, it was by a band called In Excess. And I'd like to play In Excess The Swing.
That was In Excess on FBI Radio 94.5 from the record The Swing. The song was called The Swing and it was chosen by Andrew Hull, my guest on Out of the Box today. My name's Mia Hull and the reason my guest and I share a last name is because he is my dad. Hey dad, so nice to have you. Hey Mia. Before we played that song, you were talking about leaving Burke for the first time and going to boarding school in Forbes um, and coming back in the holidays and maybe feeling a little bit isolated from your friend circle, you would eventually come back to Burke permanently to live. Can you tell me about that choice? It just seems like an interesting thing to do having already kind of left. Well, a couple of things happened while I was away at school. So my, my parents separated during the time that I was away. I mean, it was probably long overdue and me going to boarding school probably sort of was part of uh, facilitating that that division. Uh, but then I had a house in two places. So my mother was in Bathurst. She was there, so she was nice and close to Forbes and I had sort of ready access on weekends. Um, but Burke was sort of still home. The real reason I, I came back was I was... Uh, I mean, this is very embarrassing to tell your your daughter, but I was a bit of a wastrel at school. I didn't really perform to the potential that certainly my teachers recognised within me. Um, I thought I was having a great old time, which indeed I was, but uh, it didn't result in high, what were then called matriculation scores. Um, university options were going to be very limited, and we didn't have a lot of money in the family. So, and certainly my father is a, still a labourer at that time or a machine operator. Yeah, wasn't um, wasn't sort of pushing me into any uh, tertiary education. Uh, so those sort of things lined up to sort of say, well, you better go and do something else. So I came home to Burke and just uh, started doing jobs, started living life. And what jobs were you doing when you got back? I, I came home and did uh, labour type jobs. So I, I did the sort of jobs that my dad did. So I, I um, drove machinery and you know, worked on farms and then you know worked on harvest machinery for quite a while uh, Burke was uh, Burke was sort of at the head of a lot of um, irrigation development at the time um, it, it's largely a pastoral area Burke so that means sort of grazing sheep and cattle country and this was uh, a massive change in industry for the region um, and it's a, it was a very dynamic industry. It attracted a lot of people who had to do who were at the level I was, which did the sort of worky bits. But it also attracted a lot of people who had to be, you know, agronomists and other sort of professional operators. And and um, you know, they were all young. They were all straight out of uni. They were all, you know, we're all the same age. We all had the same, uh, you know, ideas of what fun looked like. You know, we all worked at the same places. So it was a really vibrant uh, time to be a, be around Burke. I mean, I'm sure people who don't live in country towns probably think, well, what do you what do you do out there? You know, there'd be nothing to do out there. But it's exactly the opposite to that. It's it's so uh, busy with social life that you almost don't have time to do anything else. There's a really, really, you know, densely packed social calendar to maintain. I mean, I want to flip that on its head a little bit because while the work you were doing attracted all these people and meant you had contact with so many friends. It also meant that you spent hours and hours in solitude, you know, on tractors and driving machinery. What did those hours of solitude look like for you? Yes, that's that's right. So the sort of work I was in was largely machinery operation and 
you know, they were a minimum of 12-hour shifts usually. Um, when I was involved in the earth moving in particular, our, our roster was a four-to-four shift. So you would either sort of get up at three in the morning and be at work at four, or you'd be, you know, leaving leaving home at three in the afternoon to be at work at four and working all night. Um, and then you're by yourself pretty much. You know, there's, there's in rare occasions you might be paired up with other people, but yeah, you're by yourself. Um, I amused myself uh, by <laughs> stringing words together. I'd, I'd always had an interest in poetry, and I spent quite a lot of time writing poems in my head and uh, maybe occasionally jotting them down on paper. And when you're locked in a in a tractor cabin, your main form of communication is through a two-way radio or UHF. Um, we didn't have mobile phones in those days. Oh God, thank the Lord we didn't have mobile phones, or it would have bored a lot of people to death. Um, but uh, even the even the small network on the UHF radio uh, got to ha- enjoy the full experience of my uh, poetic life as I um, con- concocted phrases and stanzas and little stories about the what was occurring around our uh, you know around our universe, and uh, I'd read them out over the over the radio. So uh, that was one way of entertaining myself. But you listen to you listen to a lot of uh, you know a lot of books. Podcasts didn't exist back then either. But I listened to a lot of audio books. I um, I did a lot of listened to a lot of music, you know, and sort of you know musical forms embed themselves in lyrics, embed themselves into your brain. New ideas coming through books embed themselves in. So you know, in some way, I guess I was sort of learning. Totally. Well, yeah, we'll get to that later in the show. What Dad is talking about is he's kind of made a career from writing rhymes now. But I do think that it's an interesting thing to arrive at. When you talk about it, it kind of just sounds like, oh, yeah, that's the natural thing to do. But I don't think there are many blokes driving tractors, writing rhymes and reading them out over the radio. Were you always a creative person or was there something that drove you to, you know, spend your time that way? Yes, I always was a creative person. Um, so I, I think I actually always wrote poems. Even um, I, I remember writing little poems as as a very small kid. You know about the neighbours, and you know I'd write someone a little poem for their their birthday. I was very interested in poetry at school, although my mantra of not performing to my full potential overrid that, and I never really, you know, inverted commas, studied to any great extent. Uh, but things stuck in my in my head. I like the I like the meter of poetry. I like the form of rhyming verse. So that stayed in, and um, and similarly all creative pursuits. I didn't realise it at the time, but um, you know I had a diverse array of of creative pursuits, which is typical of creative people. You know they're sort of interested in sparkly shiny things. They're easily distracted, and they they take up things quite quite quickly and adopt new ideas very quickly um which is sort of a yeah pretty good explanation of of my character as well well what were some of your other pursuits at this time well i used to draw a lot you know i used to make um these sort of detailed complex drawings they didn't have any meaning behind them they didn't have a lot of thinking behind them uh they were just detailed line drawings um I'd give anything to have them all back now because the art I've been making most recently really closely reflects it. It's these detailed line drawings with these complex overlays of pattern. Um, so, but the, and I've got I've worked out you know how to put story into the art that I make now. 
Um, so I did a lot of uh, that sort of stuff. Um, you know, I took every opportunity to learn every musical instrument that I could um, back in the time, which wasn't, again, to a high extent, to a high degree. Uh, there was no musicianship or anything in it. It was just the joy of learning music, playing music with friends and, you know, banging out songs. Uh, so that was the, I guess that was probably the array of my creative pursuits. And it was uh, a little bit unusual in, in Burke, you know. I was I was the guy in Burke who always was like, oh yeah, oh that guy, uh, you know, if someone came to town, they were like, we're looking for someone who does writing or does art or does, they go, oh yeah, we, we know that guy. There's a guy in Burke who does that. So that's how small a town it was. Like I was the guy in Burke who did that sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting you say that because I have artists on the show often and I think that for them the story comes first or the meaning comes first and then the skills and the craft kind of follow that as a way of telling that story. But it sounds like by way of being in such a small town and having an interest in those things, all these doors open up where you can just practice that craft even though you're not 100% sure why you're practicing that craft or telling those stories. Absolutely. Um, uh, it, it, mm. you're, you're right, the story came second. The analogy would be something like, you know, really spending a lot of time learning to ride a bike uh, without having anywhere to go on it <laughs> and not and not <laughs> knowing why I wanted to go somewhere or, or if I ever would want to go somewhere, but I really like riding the bike. <laughs> well, in a couple of minutes' time, we will talk about where that bike would go. We've been talking about your life in Burke and the skills that you developed in Burke and eventually how those things are going to marry. But first, let's play a song. Uh, what have you picked next? Uh, so the next song I've got is, it was a real big game changer in my life. Uh, so I want to play Not In Season uh, by a friend of mine and a wonderful musician, Tonchi McIntosh. That's the risk you take as lovers know. My combs and cutters I'll turn these wheels to the cutter bar But I'm not going back to Bree again Not in season, not in spring Where the flowers bring your name to me You're listening to FBI Radio 94.5 DAB or if you're streaming via the podcast or on our website fbiradio.com that song was by Tonchi McIntosh. It was called Not In Season. And the chooser was Andrew Hull, my dad, and guest on Out of the Box today. Dad is a writer, a poet, a musician, and an artist. And before we played that song, we were talking about honing all of those skills, but maybe not having too much reason for honing them or, you know, infusing too much meaning into the things you were making. I feel like the song that you just played by Tonchi maybe marks a bit of a turning point in that or a moment that the art you made started to mean something more. Am I right in saying that? Can you maybe explain that in a different way? <laughs> Probably not, but I'll give it a go. Um, yeah, so the, the reason we, I wanted to play that song, it was uh, a really transformative one. Tonchi was a mate of mine when uh, you know, when I was quite young, like in primary school, up right up to high school, really, um, we were we were inseparable. We were just sort of like, you know, best little mates. He lived on a farm. Um, otherwise, we'd have just hung around all together in town. Um, and 
then I went away to school and he sort of, he wasn't available as often. I'd see him a little bit. Um, so we sort of stayed roughly in touch, but, you know, he wasn't uh, connected to me, did go away to university. So there was sort of these different sort of life paths going on. And um, I was getting involved, you know, there was different little poetry things that were going on around Burke, you know, they'd have a little poet's night. And so I'd go to those and one of those, Tonchi turned up one night and he and he's, uh, starts playing these songs. He pulls out a guitar and he starts playing you know, that song. And he's like, oh, what's that song? And he's like, oh, it's the, I made an album. Here's my album. And I'm like, what do you mean you made an album? And the, and the album was full of this beautiful, beautiful, excellent music. And most of it related to this part of the world. You know, there were stories about the places I knew, about the people I knew. And I was, I was aghast, really. <laughs> you know, I just felt like, Oh my lord, you know, like that just blew blew the game wide open, you know. You can you can operate to a whole different level, you know. He he basically blew the ceiling open on the whole whole writing thing for me. Um and it was I I I was in awe and I just wanted to, you know, I I basically just latched onto Tonchi there for for a few years like let's do some work, you know. I I I do writing, I do music. <laughs> I, I I can do these things, you know. I want to, you know. So we we worked together for a few years then, a number of little projects, and and it was good to sort of have someone that I respected so greatly, also respect the work that I was doing. Like he was, he loved the lyrics I could write, and it was like, oh, he was in awe of the my ability to sort of find stories and put them together, and you know, then. It, we could really churn out some you know, great stuff together. So that's what we did. At the, around about the same time, I uh, went on a... Uh, there was a, an event called the, the Poet's Trek, which was a journey out through the back of Burke, right up to Hungerford and around through their little villages. The purpose was to look at places where poets like uh, Will Ogilvie, uh, Henry Lawson, uh, Breaker Morant had worked been written uh, poems about identified you know features in their writing and I didn't really know those poets I didn't really have a connection with Henry Lawson or Australian poetry at all you know I like Robert Frost and Keats and Yeats and these sort of things you know the sort of stuff that you learn at school those were my touchstones but when I got to read you know this Australian poetry that was written in this place that was my backyard that I'd always called home and it was good and it was sensitive and it was observational you know um I always thought of the the bush poetry scene and I mean to to the greater extent it still is you know true fair dink and rinky dink you know cork swinging off your hat how you going mate ain't don't Mm. we love a damper sort of thing but this Lawson poetry was nothing like that this was really you know it's beautiful sensitive observational writing and it belonged where I belong. Um, so, you know, those things sort of come like, a, they came like a one-two punch to me. Um, firstly, that uh, you know, it had been legitimised, the opportunity to sort of set my sights way higher, um, you know, by a couple of great, great writers, um, and that I could, you know, function at that level myself. So it really blew the game wide open. I'm interested too in gaining this kind of direction that that direction 
remain grounded in Burke because at the top of the show you talked about how sometimes it can be a pretty rough place to live. Why did you want to stay in that place and cultivate those stories? Great question. <laughs> I'll tell you something I realised at a, I don't know if it's a young age, but I, I consciously remember saying this to myself. And it was, yeah, don't regret the decisions you make at any point in your life, in your future life. Don't look back and go, well, geez, I wish I hadn't done that, hadn't been that. The person you are at whatever point in your, you are in your life is making those decisions with all the information they have and they're doing their best. Or they have motivations beyond what you understand that you will see clearly in with hindsight in the future. And you know, with my hindsight, maybe I probably wouldn't have stayed in Burke um, so long. But also uh, the world kept coming to me, you know. The higher and, and the greater that my networks got, the better I got at my skills, the more serious I got about that work, the more I got sought out for it, you know, the more I was that, oh, we know the guy we, we can go to in Burke, we'll go to that guy. And I always sort of had this philosophy that, well, you know, if you can do wonderful things in New York or if you can do wonderful things in Paris or if you can do wonderful things in Budapest, you could also do wonderful things in Burke. <laughs> you know, like it's just geography. So that was that was the story I, I told myself. I do believe it still, but I, I'm glad I told myself I wouldn't regret my previous self's decisions because I don't. I say that to myself as well, but it's usually in the context of tattoos. <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I'm like, you shouldn't regret something that a younger version of yourself once wanted. <laughs> In a couple of minutes' time, I want to talk about another aspect of your life that maybe further enriched your understanding of the country that you call home. But first, we'll play a song. What's the next one you've picked? Uh, the next song is called The Poet Game. Uh, it's by an artist called Greg Brown, who's a Midwest American artist. Uh, I came across in this sort of, you know, uh, musical awakening um, with the sort of folkies, I suppose. Um, wonderful singer-songwriter who has a deep, rich baritone voice um, and, like me, chose, chooses to live in, you know, Iowa in sort of a remote Midwest sort of small town um, uh, but does this wonderful, wonderful writing from there. So I, uh, I identify with him fairly closely. This is Greg Brown on Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. The song is called The Poet Game and it was picked by Andrew Hull. The fall rain was pounding down on an old New Hampshire mill And the river wild and high I was talking to her while leaves blew down like a sudden chill And there was wildness in her eyes and We made love like we'd been waiting all our lives for this Strangers know no shame But she had to leave at dawn And with a sticky farewell kiss Left me to play the poet game Greg Brown, it was the poet game on FBI Radio 94.5. You are tuned into Out of the Box. My name is Mia Hull. And today I'm sitting down with my dad, Andrew Hull, who is a writer, poet, musician and artist and a Barkindji man, Dad. Can you tell me where you were in life when you first became aware of your Aboriginality? Well, not specifically. So I'd like to say, you know, 
and I was sitting down and someone told me the story, but there was always uh, a bit of a filter of uh, an Aboriginal backstory in our life. Um, when my father died and his sister died, uh, a bunch of things sort of came out, and I can't really remember how. Some cousins sort of t- gave us some information, and my wife at the time, who was a really, and still is, a fantastic researcher, uh, did a little bit about digging, sort of chased these, chased these sort of swirling stories up a little bit and through local contacts and through some um, really sort of fortuitous documentation was able to I guess lay the story out in front of me and say look can you see this this is your father this was his mother this is her mother here she is identified at the Rwanda mission this is her mother um, you know who was taken away from Kalara station out the river here's all the documentation so when I say that um let me just give you a bit of context. The story of Western New South Wales, as for a lot of Australia, uh, is the story of Aboriginal people being disenfranchised from their country. So uh, they get um, pastoralism sweeps through the country. The Aboriginal people get swept up into little camps and then taken away to other places. Uh, missions like Sherberg in Queensland and just upriver from us, there was a major mission at Brewarrina. Uh, and so all these people who never belong together end up in these you know, sort of confined spaces and have to work out how to live together. Mostly they didn't like that very much. Um, they weren't used to actually getting along together. And so the missions were largely a failure. And then when people left them and they, they got the opportunity to get away, they, they tried to go home, but their home wasn't there anymore because it had been swept up uh, through pastoralism. So they went, you know, drifted into the nearest community, and the nearest large community at that time was Burke. So um, in the mission that where my great-grandmother had been taken, uh, at different times they had different anthropologists, ethnologists, um, linguists, uh, people come and sort of try to learn more about Aboriginal people because, you know, they had a lot of them there. Um, and so... My family was documented at that time. There's this incredibly detailed documentation of my great-great-grandmother. I mean, the sort of stuff you can never really... You wouldn't believe how much documentation is there. They measured the the size of you know, her upper eyelid, her lower eyelid, her nostril width, the upper lip, the lower lip, the skin colour, the skin colour of different places on her body... The, her eye colour, her hair colour, you know, the you know whether her, her chin sat forward or back. These really, you know, so much detailed information. Um, but doesn't say, oh, and she's, you know, her lips look like this, and they go like this when she smiles, or she laughs a lot, or her eyes that which are this colour that we grade on our one to eight scale, you know, sparkle or are sad or are whatever. So. I know all this information, but I don't know any story about her. Mm. Um, so it's really, you know, for someone who likes a story, it's like a, a bunch of fishing lures hanging out in front of you just asking you to bite into them so to, like, to understand where all this information comes from. But also, it sort of explains a whole lot of other things. It explains how, you know, why my grandmother lived way down the end of town you know, where the Aboriginal mission was. That explains that now because they were going, oh, you know, they just made their way over the levee. We gradually made our way into town. That's what happened. 
Um, so it became a really important story in my life. It's one I continually struggle to try and understand. You know, the conversations I have with my sister and cousins uh, are along those lines. It's like, well, we actually owe it to our great-grandmother to be proud of that now and not to sort of, um, you know, keep that myth or keep that story hidden away or keep her life hidden away. But, you know, the reason I said my, my father and his sister um, died in the same year and then the story came out was because, you know, up to sort of that point, um, it wasn't really, you know, it was it was more likely that you would be, uh, you know, you would conceal uh, your that sort of heritage. You know, not long before that, the policy was to assimilate, to take away the Aboriginal people. And certainly my grandmother was probably told to keep her Aboriginality well and truly concealed. That filtered very much through to my father. And by the time I came along, you know, the, the story was almost erased from the, from the ledger. Dad, what's the next song you've picked? Uh, the next song I picked is called Broken Song. It's from an artist named Neil Murray. Uh, and through my sort of extended musical family, he's sort of uh, in the extended musical family. I've got to play with him a couple of times, but he's a really well-known um, Australian artist. He was uh, in the Warumpi band, and um, he's a bit of a living treasure, really. Um, and we like to think of him as you know, the grand old uncle of our extended musical family. But this song is um, along the lines of what we were just talking about, and it's along the line of... Uh, an art project I'm working on now, which is to to look at those um, disconnections, those broken things, those fracture points in our lives, in our stories, in our cultural frameworks, and and not hide them, but you know, almost like the Japanese art form of kintsugi, you know, paint them with gold and show them up and make them more beautiful and own up, own them, and you know, move forward in life, sort of embracing. The Broken Bits. You're listening to Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. I'm Mia Hull. I'm sitting down with my dad, Andrew Hull, and he's chosen this song. It's by Neil Murray. It's called Broken Song. Another song line is broken. People are choking. Losing our direction. Culture is eroding. I wish I could remember what my father tried to show me. Broken Song, it was Neil Murray on FBI Radio 94.5. My name is Mia Hull. I'm sitting down with Andrew Hull on Out of the Box today, the chooser of that song. And throughout the show today, Dad, we've been talking about your life as a creative and the way that your relationship with your creativity has shifted over time. You kind of quit your day job this year. (laughs) To become a full-time creative, can you tell me about that? Yes, of course. Um, I yeah, uh, I was always quite proud that I had a day job. A lot of my friends are full-time creatives, and I've seen what a struggle that has been in their life. It's gradually sort of grown that my creative life has been occupying more and more of my time, and um, it was explained to me last year or the year before as my. My side hustle was overtaking my life. Um, 
and it got to where you know my the work I was doing was becoming I needed to pay more attention to it and my creative life was also calling for more attention so both of them were really competing and there was a there's a I guess a catalyst that came up at my work that um you know if I didn't have this catalyst I probably may not have changed because I didn't mind the work I did I, it sort of made me feel okay but this catalyst was something that was quite horrible that I didn't really like at all and it really put me into a bit of a crisis point um and then where and then you know at that point you sort of got to go back and step outside and have a look back at your life a little bit and you realize that you know all your beautiful kids are off living their lives by themselves they're all educated they've all got their own work um not responsible for them you know to the greater extent um all my mortgages are paid my car loans are paid i'm not really carrying a lot of debt my creative life is really quite blossoming why aren't i doing it <laughs> what's stopping me from going out and living in that world and um it was quite confronting because you know to actually do it i always thought i would do it uh but over the last few years i'd i'd probably stopped asking myself that question i'd probably stop saying oh yeah you know one more year or yeah in in you know giving myself a, a sort of landing point to go yeah go and do that i'd really had stopped probably thinking about it so when this catalyst arrived and it made me think about it um firstly the decision was quite easy to make but also i was quite terrified that i'd stopped asking myself the question you know that i probably may never have done it so yeah it it meant it meant sort of dropping a bunch of the reins that i was holding and uh picking up new reins plaiting them myself in some cases and and really just you know pulling focus on the sort of work or the sort of activity that most properly informed my life when people would ask me what i do i wouldn't say well i'm a you know operations manager for a such and such <laughs> I would always say oh, I'm an artist or I'm a poet or and if anyone introduced me as anything they wouldn't say well he's a great project manager uh, that's what I want you to meet him as I'd always be introduced as a artist or a poet or a, a writer or you know whatever so you know it was really just about time I got on and did it and what does that look like for you now creative is such a broad term what are you actually doing yeah so uh changing changing gears like that does take a little time to change gears so you 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 stop um you stop just steering the boat that you're that you're traveling on and you need to sort of think about the engine as well and keeping the fuel up to the engine and keeping it stoked keeping the wheels running and navigating it as well so just coming to terms with that sort of different energy different pace has sort of um taken me a little while the work that I um and in that coming to terms you feel you 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 feel like you should be more gainfully occupied all the time you feel like you should be working 8 hours a day um so i i i'm about at the point where i need to turn those 8 hours a day into uh certainly some painting and things like and uh visual art but i've had a number of sort of creative projects that needed to be brought to a conclusion um major narrative projects uh, uh, like i've been working on a sculpture project in burke for the last 6 years that sort of needs to be concluded 
Uh, I'm working on a regional futures uh, project for, uh, with a bunch of other New South Wales artists. That's all about um, narrative again. It's sort of really trying to hone into that uh, broken backstory type idea. Um, and I'm doing a lot of writing that I hadn't done before. I'm, do, I'm spending a lot of time with my cameras that I hadn't done before. I still spend a lot of time working for government departments, helping with their narratives, helping uh, people in Western New South Wales uh, take control of their narrative, not letting it take control of them. And and, t- and typically that's in, you know, short film, uh, photography, writings, the sort of things that can easily be um, used as vehicles to communicate. And I'm really enjoying it. <laughs> it's... Uh, <laughs> it's um, you know, it's there's a lot of work to do. I haven't certainly haven't been short of work, but it doesn't. You know, I'm in that situation now where it, it doesn't feel like you're doing work because you enjoy it so much. Well, I'll be following what you do in the future very closely, Dad. Thank you so much for joining me on Out of the Box today. My pleasure, Mia. Thank you. It's a real honour to be on your show. I listen to it all the time, of course. I love your interview style, <laughs> and uh, now I get to enjoy it. Yeah, for a whole hour myself, one-on-one, so thank you. What song would you like to end on? Uh, I'd be very remiss if I didn't play a Bob Dylan song. I was wondering why you hadn't played Bob Dylan yet. I was a bit confused. Uh, I've been saving this one up. Uh, This is one from his most recent album. So Bob Dylan's an old man and he just seems to improve with age, as I hope to do. Um, This one's called I Contain Multitudes. Perfect. It's Bob Dylan on FBI Radio 94.5. This show is out of the box. The song is called I Contain Multitudes and the Chooser. Writer, poet, artist, musician and renaissance man Andrew Hull, my dad and guest on the show. Hey, thank you so much for tuning in. If you did want to listen back to this episode, you can do that on the programs page on fbiradio.com. On the programs page too, I'll have the full list of songs that Dad brought to the show and a bit of extra information about the things that we've spoken about. You can also listen back by the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Do stay tuned. Isaac Altlip is up next for his first ever show on lunch. Thanks. Bye. And a black moustache Rings on my fingers that sparkle and flash Tell me what's next What shall we do Half my soul, baby, belongs to you Oh, well, I cannot frolic With all the young dudes I contain a multitude